Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me, reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about how depression affects you and your intimacy. Before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is I'm not giving away any type of medical advice. So if you're having issues with depression, please speak with your healthcare provider. And as always, I'm not giving any type of religious advice. So if you are having any religious issues, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am so happy to have on with me today, Dr. Vanika Hiraman. Hi, welcome. And uh, Dr. Hiraman, um, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, so I'm Vineka Hiraman. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist practicing in Utah. I'm the owner of Joyful Psychiatry. This is our clinic, and we specialize in treatment-resistant disorders, and we provide other modalities other than medications, for example, TMS and Esketaminos Provado to treat treatment-resistant depression and OCD as well, since that was approved. I love that. That is amazing. And I know a lot of people are interested in the ketamine. So we'll have to talk about that maybe toward the end. But I want to get right into our topic, uh, which is how depression affects intimacy. And I'm excited uh, for you to kind of let us know um, all the details on that. So uh, I was uh, dumbfounded when I when when uh, the analogy or the theory was uh, was presented that brain, the sex brain is the, the biggest sex organ. And I was like, how is that? But it's, uh, it, it's so true. So, uh, oftentimes we associate sex with just penis vagina, but there's so much more involved. So we have the sensory organs for the visual touch sensation, the skin organ, the muscular system for the contraction of the pelvis and the, uh, penile system, uh, the cardiovascular organ when blood pressure, heart rate uh, rises up with uh, sexual activity, respiratory rate increases, so heavy breathing during the activity. And then the endocrine system is also involved with uh, like release of hormones like oxytocin. But then the brain on top of that, it integrates all of the modalities. So uh, serves as a sensory integration. So all of our senses 
uh, are connected and that signals to the brain, okay, this is uh, this sexual desire that's um, arising. So it underlies the importance of the brain in the uh, emotional, cognitive, psychological effects in the sexual activity. Uh, the brain, other than uh, kind of integrating all of that, is also responsible for the neurotransmitters and uh, hormones, as we talked about. So oxytocin is produced in the hypothalamus, which is the love hormone, as we call it. The neurotransmitters like dopamine, which is the desire motivation hormone, um, is very heavily um, uh, increased or like it's uh, affected in the in the sexual uh, activity. And then there's also like memory integration, memory association. So maybe like a, 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 a pleasant stimulus, the scent or the touch might uh, affect sexual desires positively. On the other hand, maybe somebody who has gone through trauma, that would be a negative correlation with sexual desire and sexual activity. Um, then we also have all the emotional processing going on in the brain. Um, and that's how depression Kind of comes into play as well how uh, it can seriously impair sexual function in people that are affected. Mm, I love that. I love how you integrate everything. So not only is brain the brain responsible for the physiological things that happen when a person is aroused and when they have desire, right? We know that the brain will send signals to the genitals and increase blood flow and heart rate and all of those things. Um, but also, also the psychological component, right? So you have to be in the right mindset for all of those things, for those physiological things to happen. So, you know, it's kind of like we talk about that where there's actually something called arousal non-concordance, right? Where your body can respond to sexual stimuli but your brain may not want it. So for example, as example may be that um, if somebody is engaging in physical intimacy and they notice that for women, they may notice that they are lubricated, but they are not, they themselves, even though their body is responding, they may not want that interaction. They may not have consented. Um, and so their partner thinks that they, you know, because they're aroused, they're lubricated, that they want the sexual interaction, but actually they don't. And so that's where consent will come in. And, you know, definitely that's a different topic. But, you know, I think that's really important what you bring up about how the, you know, the, we have the physiological things that happen in the brain, but then also the brain is also telling us what we like, what we don't like, what our thoughts are about what's happening and whether or not we're interested in what's happening. And also that happens for men as well, right? So their body could be, uh, they could be responding to a sexual stimulus, but they may not want that interaction. It could be, so there's a story that I know of where um, a boy was in a fraternity and he noticed that a woman was being assaulted and his body was responding because it was a sexual stimulus, but he didn't report it to the police because he thought that he actually liked it, enjoyed it and felt awful and guilt and shame. Uh, which, you know, he shouldn't have because he should have, you know, he didn't know that just because his body responds doesn't mean that he actually liked it and that he could have reported that incident, but he didn't because he felt shame that his body had responded. So Right, probably feeling guilt and then feeling responsible as well, as opposed to 
I'm going to report it because that it was wrong, but then why did I get an erection in the process? Exactly, exactly. So, so important what you bring up, and I love that. So, you know, I'd love to get into a little bit of how depression then um, changes our thoughts and our feelings and uh, results in the actions that come about when a person is depressed and how that in- affects intimacy. So in general, uh, the symptoms of depression would be um, people want to isolate. They don't want to be around people. They want to stay in their corner. They kind of turn to themselves. There's a lot of guilt, a lot of, lots of feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, uh, even extending sometimes to um, I'm not worthy, hence I cannot be a worthy partner. And in very severe cases, we even see uh, patients when they're like, they're not in the right state of mind because they are not uh, reasoning properly, if you will, in uh, when they are extremely depressed. So they would, that thinking will even extend to, well, if I'm not a good partner, then maybe it would be better that I'm not here. Then my partner mm-hmm. will have the opportunity to have another partner or my child can have another parent that will be a worthy mother. These are, of course, in the extreme cases, but in general, depression uh, comes with uh, with like tiredness, lack of interest, lack of motivation, worthlessness, hopelessness, and isolation. So all of this directly impact intimacy because then there will be no, uh, you know, no desire for sex, no desire for uh, intimacy, no. Uh, no interest even in pleasurable activities for some people sex might not be pleasurable but even things like their hobbies that they typically enjoy they would not be feeling those uh that excitement that joy when it comes to doing those activities in fact they don't want to do anything they want just want to maybe sleep and uh be in their shell uh Along with that, then that perpetuates the feelings of worthlessness because they're feeling like, okay, they're not being a worthy individual that's performing the the duties that society wants them to engage in, like their job or uh, being a spouse. Um, and uh, it just kind of perpetuates into uh, not wanting to have uh, intimacy at all. So then the partner of the depressed person would think that, what did I do wrong? Like, uh, is there something that I'm doing? Or the other way around could also be like, what's wrong with them? Go, you know, uh, do they not love me anymore? Are they cheating on me? So it leads to a lot of complications, leads to lack of communication and further withdrawal. So as opposed to closeness and intimacy that uh, the, the, the couple would, want to engage it it's kind of the opposite where they withdraw completely um and on top of that then there's the the uh so decrease in libido decrease in orgasm or difficulty achieving orgasm erectile dysfunction as well for the more physical components of how depression affects uh sexual function as well yeah so obviously depression is affecting all facets of 
a person's life, right? So not only just kind of what you mentioned at the beginning, right? Not only the physiological aspects of that person, but also the psychological component. And of course, the intimacy and the relationship. And, you know, a lot of times women desire, and men too, but women tend to desire it more is the emotional intimacy that a relationship provides. And so if you have a person that is, withdrawing and going more into themselves, then they're not going to have that emotional intimacy with their partner. And then that's going to cause more dysfunction, I assume. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of uh, marriages that have probably been broken because somebody, one of the uh, partners was having um, a severe depressive episode. Uh, and that was interpreted as a there's no attraction between us and uh, things are not going well between the two of us, but it was actually depression or anxiety that were the underlying causes and mm -hmm. that was left untreated and that left le led to the dissolution of the marriage. Sure, sure, yeah, no, absolutely. So I'd love to know, you know, from your end, what type of therapies or what can be done for this? I know I had on a psychiatrist before and he mentioned that he believes the solution to depression is actually movement. And he says that, you know, movement has shown that it improves mood, um, you know, just to get out and do something and not to be so inward, but to extend yourself outward, whether it's with dancing or with engaging in others or, you know, helping out other people, um, that that really affects your mood. So what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's uh, uh, there's definitely validity to movement. So what movement will do will increase dopamine. And uh, we know that that uh, is greatly influenced uh, in bisexual activity and results in sexual activity as well. Uh, but also endorphins, so just feeling good in general. Uh, however, I, I, I think there's a more multifaceted approach, especially depending on the levels of depression. So if somebody is mildly depressed, yes, maybe uh, uh, those activities will, will certainly help. And in any stage of depression, that will, that will be helpful. But when we've reached, as I was saying before, uh, the stage where the feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness are so much that it leads to even illogical thinking to the point that they will rationalize uh, that uh, me being dead would actually be better for my partner, I don't think movement will be enough. Uh, and in fact, movement might even be too difficult for the person at that time because they don't want to do anything. So uh, in those uh, situations and in depending on the severity of the depression, uh, there are other things that can be done as well. But, but in general, I think self-care, good nutrition, movement, social connection this is always healthy because as humans we are social animals so uh connectivity is very important and one of the things that depression does is actually the opposite of that where we don't want to connect and the isolation then makes things worse so there's definitely a role for that but i don't think that's that's not enough for a lot of people but let's say their depression gets better with other modalities, then that's definitely something we encourage, like 
continue to do your walks or your exercises or things that you like to do. Continue to engage. What are the things you like to do, especially creative outlets that can help kind of uh, stabilize people's moods, but also once they get better, how to keep them in that state? Because a lot of times people are in the pit, you know, like we run the treatment resistant clinic. So people are really, really desperate and it's very, very difficult. Some people don't don't shower for days. Now, for such a person, you can't just tell them, you know, like, just go exercise and you'll be okay. We need more things. But once they are out of the pit and they're doing better, then it's as important to encourage activities um, to keep them at that good mood instead of if they don't take care of themselves, they, they might have another episode of depression. Mm. You know, when you you mentioned the pit, so I assume that's what um, when a person is at their lowest, is that what you're referring to? Yes, kind of like uh, depression or mood comes in ebbs and flows, right? So that some people are maybe stable here, but then their mood declines and then they reach their lowest point. So that's what I was referring to with a pit, like they're at that uh, at that very bad spot. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I'm uh, curious to know, you mentioned already, you know, whether or not movement works. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about medications because I know that there are different medications and not all medications are going to work for everyone. Right. Yes. So, uh, Unfortunately, the psychiatric medications have a bad rep, and unfortunately, they uh, there is a, a, a place for them. But the the first line of treatment for depression usually are the SSRIs and the SNRs, so serotonin reuptake inhibitor and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So, as uh, important as serotonin is for uh, regulation of mood. It tends to, or it can, it doesn't happen in a lot, in, in all people, but it can affect or decrease sexual function. For example, decrease desire or decrease uh, uh, difficulties with ejaculation, difficulties with orgasm. Uh, but it doesn't happen with, with everyone. It's just worth mm-hmm. counseling and letting the patients know that this is a possibility. I think it's so important. I just want to stop you right there for a second. I think it's so important that you mention that and not many physicians, not many psychiatrists bring that up. And I think that's really important for people to know, especially if they are on antidepressants and, you know, they're trying to be intimate with their partner, that they can have problems with orgasm, that they can have problems with their erection and that, um, you know, those things, there's nothing wrong with them, but that it's a function of the medication and, and aside effect of that and that they they just don't know and they were never told about that you know and i think that it's unfortunate that and we can get into this but (laughs) i won't but it's unfortunate that a lot of physicians don't feel comfortable talking about sexual medicine or sexual health and so that's something that they perhaps the physician doesn't know or maybe they just don't think of it as important and so they don't mention it and then the patient goes home and uses these medications and you know their mood is starting to feel a little bit better but then they're having all these sexual health side effects that they don't realize and don't know about and then all of a sudden now they think that they're you know there's something wrong with them right and then uh the other aspect of that is also um if the depression is severe especially then um what it becomes like a, a uh like a a stratification a risk benefit stratification like 
is it what is more important at the time? Is it the sexual activity or is it gaining back some functions of the life? A lot of people, if they are told right off the bat that okay, this is gonna this this there's a high likelihood of sexual dysfunction, they will probably not even want to take it. However, it's important to put it in the context that this may happen or may not happen. There's a risk of that. If it does happen, let me know and we can uh, find other strategies. And other strategies to combat that would be, for example, to maybe decrease the dose of the medication to a point where it doesn't uh, cause the sexual disturbances or to switch medication to something that's a little bit more favorable but still helps with depression but doesn't affect the sexual function or uh, what we call augmentation. So uh, we add on another antidepressant or another uh, medication that can help counter the side effects. So we don't want them to lose their sexual sexual function, especially as their mood is getting better, uh, but also uh, kind of like we are on your side. We want you to get better. Let us know what you're experiencing. Because some people are on like maximum doses of antidepressants of, of, of the SSRIs, for example, and they don't have any sexual problems. And some are on the lowest dose and it affects their sexual function. And that mm. it perpetuates the depression too. Sure, of course. And especially if that was... You know, there are people definitely that don't care about sexual function. It's just not a big deal to them and it's not important to their relationship. But there are others that it's very important in their relationship. And so, you know, it will get them more depressed yeah, because they'll that- think that that's just another thing that's wrong with them, right? Exactly, and, yes. And that it'll just compound their their thoughts about themselves. So I can see how that would really be awful for a patient. So I'm interested now, um, I know that you mentioned that you specialize in uh, treating depression that is refractory to traditional medicine. Um, So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little about ketamine. I don't think I really know everything. So what we do, we don't do the IV or the IM ketamine. We do, so that's intravenous and atramuscular. We do the intranasal ketamine, which is FDA approved. The others are not FDA approved yet. Um, and, uh, we, so for patients that have not responded to one or more, uh, so the, 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 the definition of treatment resistant depression varies, but usually let's say somebody has not, re- uh, responded to more than two antidepressants, um, then they would fall in that category, uh, of treatment resistant depression. Uh, and, uh, there are other options other than medication, luckily, that can help those people. Uh, and uh, one of them is TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And the other one is uh, ketamine in all the forms, just that intranasal ketamine is the one that is covered by insurance and approved. The others still work and they work really well, but they just haven't been approved yet. Mm. And uh Right now, ketamine is very hip, like a lot, of, a lot of people have heard it, want to try it. It's kind of, in a way, like the, the, the miracle medication in the psychiatry world right mm. now. Um, so f- first off, uh, so uh, TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So 
uh, just breaking down the terms, transcranial is kind of across the brain and then magnetic, it uses magnetic pulses and then stimulation because in the, the, what they found with depressed people is that certain areas are underactive. So the area that's targeted in transcranial magnetic stimulation is the prefrontal cortex. Uh, so we, the magnetic pulses help stimulate the neurons. So the function better, the, the, the connections with each other is better. There's neuroplasticity, increased blood flow, um, increased, uh, activity in the, in the brain cells usually. Um, and the connection with the, the antidepressants we were talking about is that will not affect sexual uh, function. So it will not directly cause increase in sexual function, but because it's not like a medication that you take, it also doesn't negatively affect sexual function. So that's an option for a lot of people that struggle with that. Like they've tried different medications and they still have uh, sexual dysfunction. TMS will not cause that. However, even though it doesn't directly cause sexual stimulation, indirectly by improving depression, it helps uh, with uh, down the line uh, mm. with sexual function as well. Uh, ketamine um, also helps with neuroplasticity or attaches to another receptor, which is the NDMA receptor. And uh, it's, it, it's helpful for refractory depression as well for patients that are really struggling uh, with suicidal thoughts. They, they are acutely suicidal because uh, ketamine works so fast, it gets them out of that crisis state uh, more rapidly than anything else, any medications, because antidepressants take, take up to weeks to work. Usually we see effects much faster, but for, the, uh, for an optimal trial period, it's six to eight weeks. Ketamine works much faster. So it's literally a lifesaver. Wow. If it works, it doesn't work in all the people. Mm -hmm. How long does ketamine take to work? I mean, I, is it just instant or is it, you know, are there like certain sessions that you have to have, like you do like one session every week for six weeks? Is, how does that work? So the protocol with Sprovado is uh, we do it twice a week. It's not we, it's uh, because it's FDA approved. It's very tightly controlled. Um, uh, because uh, they are, I, I guess they're still studying it and they want us to perform the protocols that were approved by the FDA for maximum efficacy. So we do it twice a week for the first month and then once a week in the second month. And after that, it's kind of depending on how the patient is doing clinically. So some patients may just need a booster dose in a couple of weeks and some people, their depression is so bad that they kind of need a regular um, dose of ketamine as they go along. Um, the effects vary by individual. So some people respond after the first session, they will feel much better. And some people, it takes them a couple of sessions before they start feeling uh, like, oh, their depression is lifted. Hmm. So what have you noticed in your experience? Have you noticed that men tend to do better or women tend to do better with ketamine or is there really no difference uh, in genders? Uh, from what we've seen, both genders respond very well. It's just, it's more uh, a function of the individual and their, the extent of their depression. Because some people are 
uh, like, as I said, actively suicidal. So they might uh, take a little longer uh, to respond and then the uh, they might need more frequent treatments as well. And some people who have had milder depression may respond faster. Mm. Okay. That's, so that's all great information to know, especially because when it comes to relationships and how that being affected, you know, it's really helpful to know that there is treatment out there, even for patients that are so depressed and refractory to most medications. It's so, I guess, heartening to hear that there is therapy yeah. for those individuals. Right. Uh, I actually had a patient that uh, was so depressed and yeah. then they started doing um, Sprobato and her mood was so, she became ecstatic, not magic, but ecstatic. And uh -huh. then at the end, she was like, I'm going to stop ketamine now because we're ready to have kids. Like uh -huh. they were, they, they have been, uh, they've struggled, they gave up on the, even the idea of uh, building a family and she started uh -huh. feeling so much better. And the, the sexual drive came back and they were like, yep, we're ready for a family now. That's fantastic. That's, so have you noticed that people tend to relapse if they come off the ketamine? Or I guess perhaps it just depends on the individual if they, how often they need it and how well they respond? Yes, uh, that's still an area of uh, study. So we know that ketamine works and it works relatively fast, but we don't know the duration exactly. Um, that's why the protocol for Sprobato is set for two months, but after that, it's kind of depending on the clinical response. So some people, uh, they just need a booster dose every once in a while. We, we tell them like, if you, uh, if you notice your symptoms, uh, then, you know, come back for treatment. And some people, uh, need that regularity with the treatments. Uh, because they kind their depression goes if they let's say the uh, they they are supposed to come for a treatment after two weeks by the two weeks they start feeling worse again so they need that booster dose more frequently. Hmm. So um, have you ever done this where you you know have put them on ketamine and they've done better and now you put them on an SSRI or do you do that or do you go in between different meds or you don't do that? Usually, so for, for Spravado, not for ketamine, but for Spravado, they require that the patient be on an antidepressant. It doesn't need to be uh, for, for the treatment initiation for it to get approved. But after they start feeling better, a lot of people are like, I'm feeling better. Can we try to take me off of the medication? I don't want to be on it for the rest of my life. And then so we, we try to taper them off and then just monitor them closely. Because now they, they might not need the antidepressant, but they can rely on on Spravato if it worked well for them. So that's absolutely possible. Sure. Okay. Well, this is so interesting. So tell me if um, any parting last um, thoughts or pearls that you'd like to tell the audience about, um, you know, what you think would be really helpful or... But anything that you've discovered on your um, treatment with um, treating patients that have severe depression? So uh, the first thing will be to talk about it because yeah. depression is, uh, or mental illness in general, are still it's still a pretty 
taboo topic. A lot of people are like, okay, we're not going to talk about it because maybe if you don't talk about it, it hasn't, it's not happening, right? But it's not the case. The more you open up and the more you have support, the better it is. So then other uh, partners and family can support as well, where they validate the patient's emotions as opposed to being judgmental. They can listen to their concerns. They're attentive to their needs. Maybe they can help out with house chores or any activities that the the patient needs help with. Um, They would, one important help is that they encourage the person to get help from outside. Uh, Like, for example, we have a lot of people that... um, you know, they, they know that, okay, I need, I know I need help, but oh gosh, no, I don't, I don't want to see a therapist like that. That's, I don't want to be crazy. I don't want to see a therapist. I don't want to see a psychiatrist. Uh, and they try to manage on their own and they suffer for a long time. So instead, uh, themselves or their partners can, um, it's, it, it will be very helpful if they encourage them in the right di- direction and support them. Uh, a lot of partners also um, get therapy for themselves. How? Because, for example, let's say we're on the topic of um, sex. So how to deal with the frustrations of their partners not being able to um, attend to their needs or uh, there's a lo- loss of connection so they can process it themselves. They can also join support groups. Um, and the patient themselves, they can do therapy, they can do group therapy, um, or uh, discuss about other coping skills as well. And again, like I was saying earlier, just the regular self-care, we can never underestimate um, those uh, activities that can help the person, maybe just a little thing every day in the direction of the self-care, good sleep, good nutrition, movement, um, being around people, maybe they, they won't want to be around big crowds of people, but being around their partner, somebody that they trust, and then shifting to a different kind of intimacy, for example, emotional intimacy or physical intimacy that is non-sexual, like hugging, being close, uh, touching hands, uh, doing activities together. So like experiential or recreational intimacy, so they can that can also ignite the sexual intimacy back as well. I love it. You're speaking all my favorite things. <laughs> I talk about that all the time. The experiential, the intellectual, the emotional, the physical intimacy. There's so many different types. And so, right, not only is there the physical intimacy, but just what you said, like taking walks together, hugging, cuddling, you know, kissing, all of those things. Um, just connect people even more and create that emotional intimacy and la and allow really the other person to be vulnerable with each other. I love also the fact that you said that the partners seeking therapy, right? Because here you have this person, your spouse or whoever, experiencing severe depression and you know, you're with them on this journey and then, you know, you Perhaps that person starts to have feelings like, you know, wow, is there something that I did? Is there something wrong with me that this person goes into this severe depressive episodes where they may even be suicidal, right? So definitely that partner also needs therapy and they also need a support group because then they can not only normalize the conversation, but realize it's nothing that they did but how they can empower and support their partner when they need it the most. Exactly. 
Um, and then uh, the therapy can also teach them better boundaries, for example, how to not get burnt out. You have a spouse yeah. that's really depressed, they might need a lot of help, but also how to take care of yourself in during that time. Sure, sure, right. And not if both of them are suffering that it's like, okay, we're going to have more problems getting yeah. one better. But at least if uh, you know, the oxygen mask analogy, right, take care of yourself, so you can take care of the other person. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been such a fantastic conversation. And I think that it's so important to realize how definitely the brain is the biggest sexual organ. And we know that and to see it and to really respect the functions of the brain and how important it is to our lives and really all of our functions. So, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'd love for people to know how they can get in touch with you, how they can reach out to you, and, you know, how they can follow you on social media, all of that. Okay, so we are, there's joy everywhere. So a website is joyfulhorizon.com. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook uh, at Joyful Horizon. And then they can call our office. We're in Utah, 801-618-4303. Awesome. And I love the fact that you use the word joyful, especially because you deal with depression. So I yeah, I can tell that that was very uh, intentional. So that's, that's nice. It gives people hope, which is really, I think, some of the most important things, right, is that oftentimes people lose hope and don't have hope. So I think just even the name of your practice gives people hope. So that's fantastic. So, well, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Herman. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And uh, well, I am done and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this was not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having issues with depression, please make sure you reach out to your healthcare provider and seek help, uh, whether it's with a psychiatrist or a therapist, make sure you get the help that you need. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.